Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the July 27, 2022 QPSC meeting. Uh, Council, if you'll give us a roll call, please. Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Bouquet? Here. Trustee Jensen? Here. Trustee Esteen is excused. We have a quorum. Thank you. Uh, as always, we'll open up with the purpose of the QPSC. The QPSC is established to provide oversight and leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies, and monitoring of organizational quality assurance, performance improvement, and safety programs. The QPSC is charged with continuing the practice of direct communication with medical staff leaders on issues of clinical ops and patient care. Um, so that's our purpose. We're going to go to um, uh, public comment. Um, uh, there, uh, for reasons I'll tell you about in a second, is there any public comment? We normally ask you to submit that to the clerk of the board. You'll know why that process maybe didn't work out in a second. Scanning the room, council, if you'll scan, scan with me, I'll give opportunity for public comment right now. Okay, I see none. With that, we'll go to item A. Uh, item A is the QPSC chair's report we normally submit an article here. Uh, uh, we did not this week though. And here's why. Last Thursday, while we were in the midst of finalizing uh, the agenda for this meeting, uh, Chris Gonzalez, uh, the husband of our beloved clerk of the board, Rana Jojolo Gonzalez, uh, very unexpectedly passed away. Um, I didn't know Chris, uh, but Rana and I spoke of him often. Uh, he played the guitar, I play the guitar. Well, I don't know if I really play the guitar, but he plays the guitar. It sounded like he had a gentle art of soul and he was certainly loved. So obviously our thoughts are with uh, Rana and her family right now. So I ask uh, for this agenda item that we just give uh, Chris um, a moment of silence. So let's give Chris a little bit of time here, everybody. Okay, thank you everyone. Again, thoughts, prayers, love to uh, Rana and her family. With that, um, I'll open it up to um, the other trustees if they have any other comments for I item A. You know, remember this is an open forum item for the trustees. Trustee Banerjee or Jensen, any comments on this section? Yeah, I would, I would also, you know, keeping Rana and her family in our hearts. Um, it's, um, you know, this, um, it's crushing to lose a, an immediate family member. And I know that the AHS family is doing all it can to support and we should all be deep into so many ways in which we can show her our affirmation and love. And um, to, it, there are, you know, uh, to Donna, her family, her beloved community, and to our staff who might be going through hard times too. There's, it's, you know, the us not for whom the bell tolls, they, it tolls for us. Um, so when someone passes, it's a, it's a loss for all of us. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Um, Trustee Jensen, any comments? No, um, no comments. I, I appreciate 
just appreciation for um, for you allowing for this moment and for um, all of us to understand and appreciate and support what Ron is going through right now with her family. Yes, ma'am. If we're not thoughtful of each other while we're here at this place, what the heck are we doing, right? So I close out item A. Let's go to item B. That's the consent agenda. Trustees, uh, the consent agenda is before you uh, before entertaining a motion to approve the entirety of the consent agenda, are there any items that need to be removed for discussion? And I'll make one other comment. We normally have minutes attached here. Minutes weren't attached for the circumstances that we discussed. So we have items uh, B1, B2, uh, B3. Um, anything that needs to be removed, Trustee Jensen or Trustee Banerjee? Um, this is Kinkini. I'd like to pull um the neonatal assessment and prioritization on page 46 that's the policy uh food nutrition services for discussion group yes ma'am sorry i'm just trying to track here where this is page got 46. it uh page 43 got it so we we will uh uh with, with uh madam madam trustee if you'll make a motion uh to approve everything except for that uh, uh item we'll second it and then we can discuss it Um, yeah, I move that we approve the consent um, agenda, except for the policy, and um, I don't have the screen in front of me. On page 46, what is Yeah, the, we, we can just reference it. That's good enough, yeah. Trustee Banerjee, the neonatal policy. Um, all right, uh, council roll call. Trustee Banerjee? Aye. Trustee Jensen? Aye. Chair Bouquet? Aye. Motion passes. So, so with that, um, the consent agenda uh, moves forward with exception to um, policy. Trustee Banerjee, I apologize. What page is this on? 46. Ah, uh, that's right. Got it. Um, uh, Madam Trustee, can you advise uh, the comment uh, you'd like to make on this one? Sure. So this is about, um, and I am still trying to get the book in front of me. My internet has been acting up, but I made some notes. So um, this one is about neonatal assessment of nutritional needs of infants in the NICU. And um, we are a WHO designated baby friendly hospital. Um, according to the um, guidelines by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, human milk feeding, breast milk should be kind of normative, um, especially for NICU. I don't see either any references to the AAP guidelines, any reference to, like it says, the RD, registered dietitian, and I understand that is my profession. I'm a lab study, but that's my clinical uh, training that I've been in, and yet, and yet, I would say that unless there's an ass assessment by an IBCLC or a lactation consultant or any of that, like there is no, there doesn't seem to be also uh, given that our, the policy is initiation, exclusivity and duration in the NICU and beyond NICU, I don't see any of that showing up in the policy. So I just want to know that anything that comes here 
I know has gone through like five, six levels of screening before it comes to QPSC or the board. This is one area where I have domain knowledge. And so it was kind of stark to me a little bit. So I'll pause there to see like, what are the ramifications here? How does this um, apply with the AAP guidelines? And how does this, uh, uh, how does this align with our health equity um, guidelines as well? Because usually you use an equity screen that you say, who are the folks who are, who are the babies in the NICU? Which demographic is it? Who are the, is there a greater uh, element of infant morbidity and mortality between this subgroup? If so, then what? And so like none of that is visible over here. So, um, so I, I think that, I wonder if this needs a little bit, you know, finessing and revision. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee, for those comments. Obviously, you do have subject matter knowledge in this because I, I didn't know any of those things. Um, it, it looks like the, uh, uh, I think the good news is, I don't think this has existed in previous form. If you look at the top of the form, it says effective date, not set. It says date revised, not set. So I think this is a de novo policy. Our manager for clinical nutrition is the document owner and the executive responsible is our VP of support services. I'm not sure, and uh, well, let me say that I am always impressed by, but by what Dr. Tornabeni knows, but <laughs> if she knows this detail, I'll be triply impressed with her. Um, do we, Dr. Tornabeni, do you think we have a subject matter expert to help navigate this dialogue? And then I'll, I'll make one last comment. Uh, Trustee Banerjee's correct. It's, it's navigated department on June 6th, Pharmacy and Therapeutics on June 27th, the Clinical Practice Council on 7-7, and the MEC on 7-20. Dr. Tornabene, uh, can, you, can you advise? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have subject matter expertise with this yeah. policy. I think that Trustee Banerjee raised a very important and great point about the importance of breast milk feeding and whether or not we actually need to tie. I believe we have a separate breast milk feeding policy, if I if I recall. However, um, given that this one is coming from our dietary manual, that I, I think we likely need to perhaps align those. And so this might just be an opportunity um, to take a look back and see if we need to align those two policies. I, I, I think that's I think that sounds reasonable. Trustee Banerjee, would would that be acceptable to you to send it back down the chain with specific question on with specific address uh, addressment of the issues you've raised to our our clinical nutrition team? Yeah, it, thank thank you for that. I think that makes sense. And also, you know, as a point for public um, in, in this public domain breast milk is contraindicated in where in like rarely in any kind of medical uh, you know situation over here in fact the benefits of it are much more so i think that on the, the, somewhere those two policies need to be aligned in some ways but also uh, yes yes and before we move to the next item is that it made me think about so many ways in which sometimes the policies unless there is an equity lens used um, in it, that which other policy, there have been some times when I thought, ah, like, I wonder if this is equitable, but I'm like, I don't know the domain. And I trust that when it's come through five levels that that has happened. But this one kind of raises that for me in so many ways, because when we do 
this is it like hey is this something is who benefits whose burden is this something that is allowing us to like which which group is it is this is this something that is allowing us to advance our health equity goals if it's our division what is the one or two issues on equity that we are moving forward with so there are like three or four screening questions that i think can inform decisions at all levels so while we are speaking very specifically about this one i wonder how do we ensure that some filters are used as leader standard work or other things so that with all other policies there is some way in which while we are moving towards high reliability that we are also embedding and making sure that safety and equity are um, are like intertwined in that sense Dr. Tornabene, any question on the approval policy? This says the word uh, on the approval pathway. It just says department. Should, is, is it a proper presumption when it says department? Are we talking about department of pediatrics or, or do you know? I don't know. I was wondering yeah. about that myself because yeah. whether or not, given that this came from our dietary department, whether that was the indication, not a medical staff, but um, perhaps a dietary department, I think I need to just do some discovery on that and find out where this generated from and perhaps just align the the RD policy, um, or at least make reference between the, the dietary manual essentially and policy here and our breast milk feeding policy and make sure they're in complete alignment with each other. Thank you, Dr. So Conte. I'll take that as a follow-up. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. And I'll volunteer too, like if any help is needed, if um, either me or, um, you know, Dr. Meek who wrote the AAP policies are closed beer um, and we could have, you know, best practices or any of that inform um, the finessing of this. I'll be happy to. Uh, Thank you. That's an amazing yeah. offer. I appreciate that. Okay. So with that, I think we will move out of consent agenda. So uh, please note, uh, Council, for our notes, the consent agenda was approved with exception to that single policy on uh, the neonatal feeding, which will be pulled and discussed, and it'll be, be brought back forth at a later date after uh, revisions. And of course, uh, Trustee Banerjee has volunteered her expertise to help guide that. So it look, with that, it looks like we close item B, our consent agenda. Let's go to item C. This is the part in the evening where we hear from our medical staff leaders. Uh, we hear from Dr. Irina Williams, the chief of the medical staff for Highland and San Leandro. We hear from Dr. Idris Sali, who uh, is a representative of the San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee. And we hear from Dr. Nikki Joshi, uh, who is the chief of staff for Alameda Hospital. So uh, Dr. Williams popped up, her, her lovely face popped up first. So she goes first, then Dr. Joshi, and then Dr. Zali. Thank you, Dr. Bouquet. Um, good evening, trustees. Um, I will start uh, with my report for um, AHS uh, medical staff. Um, I wanted to share that at the last MEC, we have received uh, reports from San Leandro Leadership Committee with more details coming from Dr. Avzali uh, later in this meeting, as well as Quality and Safety Committee report. We have also heard um, a report from the Department of Ambulatory and Preventative Medicine. Um, I wanted to share some highlights from that report to highlight some of the important work that this department is doing. Um, their performance metrics have been exceeding most quality, um, most quality goals, um, which is great to hear. Um, 
there are some opportunities there, including bringing more residents on board um, to some of our freestanding wellness clinics. Um, uh, Eastmont Wellness Center in particular is one of the areas where um, uh, that has been looked at for that. Um, some of the challenges that were brought up that will also uh, be reflected in the key concerns were regarding capacity in primary care as well as staffing shortages and provider burnout. So I will get to that a little bit later in my report. Um, some of the successes that I wanted to share with the board um, Last weekend, um, uh, we had a pop-up clinic for uh, infant and toddler COVID vaccinations at Eastmont Wellness Center. Um, uh, so I wanted to share that we uh, have successfully completed this event for our community. Um, in addition, echoing on some of the concerns shared in the previous um, board meeting regarding onboarding process, um, sort of a group has been launched uh, to lead the effort on improving provider onboarding process. And this effort is being led by Dr. Besh on the physician side, as well as Michelle Serpaio, HR and medical staff team. So we're looking forward to learning more about that collaboration. Um, in terms of the key concerns, um, we listed a few and I will start with uh, primary care providers recruitment and support. Um, so uh, we have learned that um, our primary care provider um, capacity doesn't quite meet the demand uh, for primary care services within our system. And um, there is a need and um, and ask from our primary care um, teams, both in the Department of Internal Medicine and Ambulatory and Preventative Medicine uh, for some efforts to figure out how we can better support our providers, how we can better provide primary care services. Um, so um, the leadership has heard uh, this ask and a number of task forces have, have been launched to um, figure out how we can better support our primary care docs and um, APPs, what, what should we do in terms of recruitment, recruitment how, what should we do about workload in basket management. So the work is being done in that regard and we're looking forward to this issue being further addressed. Um, another concern that I listed is um, department chair recruitment and retention. Um, I think this was prompted by um, sort of launching yet um, being in the process of launching yet another department chair search um, within the medical staff. Um, and um, MEC had some questions about sort of the overall strategy for the department chair recruitment within the um, health system, as well as retention of the newly recruited chairs. You know, what are we going to be doing differently? How are we going to make sure that we're retaining the talent that we recruited? So, um, I have reached out to the president of the BMG on behalf of MEC to give us more information about it. And Dr. Achilles Warren um, will be sharing um, some of her vision and strategies like with the upcoming MEC. Um, so we're grateful for this continuous dialogue. Um, another key concern is nursing and support staffing shortages. Um, that seems to be the case across the health system with maybe some more challenges in San Leandro Hospital. Um, unfortunately, we, we don't have any specific quantitative data um, to share uh, regarding the exact numbers. However, 
the the providers definitely feel and see that shortages are there. A lot of them are COVID related in terms of absences and challenges with cross coverage. Um, and uh, I know that Dr. Lofton is working tirelessly on this um, challenge and problem and um, looking into various um, avenues and opportunities to help with recruitment and retention and um, nursing uh, and support uh, staffing support. Um, so uh, we appreciate her work um, on, on this concern of ours. And that concludes my report. Uh, if, there's any, if there are any questions, I'm open to answering. Thanks for that report, Dr. Williams. Trustee Banerjee, Trustee Jensen, any questions or comments for Dr. Williams? Uh, I, this is Trustee Jensen. I just wanted to um, ask Dr. Williams, there were a couple of policies that were just approved uh, that will, um, it, it, it looks like it will give more um, autonomy maybe. Uh, I'm thinking of the policy that was just approved regarding um, physician um, new privileges. So I just wanted to hear it from um, any, how that might, be um, useful or how it might impact the, the challenges that, that are, you're having with providers, that we're having with providers. Um, will you please specify which exact policy um, you're referring to? I'm referring specifically, um, Dr. Williams, to the introduction of a new privilege or, um, for a specific department. And I, it looks to me like, and um, Dr. Cherry, you can talk about this too. It may be, it looks like it's um, just, loosening the um, the procedures for, for establishing authority to do new procedures for physicians in certain specialties. And I'm not a physician, so. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's actually just delineating the pathway on which we, which, which we, you know, a doctor comes in and they want to do this and they were trained in that, but that maybe it wasn't something that we offered here previously. It sort of delineates the pathway, for example, for which they could do, I'm making it up, an interventional radiology guided biopsy of something. So uh, if we'd never had this privilege in the system, they couldn't have been credentialed for it. So this I think is one system to allow a pathway for that. Does that sound right, Dr. Tornabene? Yeah. Um, so so yes, I, I, I love that there is, I, I also love that there's sort of a pathway for, for doing this because otherwise before we'd be like, well, how do we credential this? We've never done this here before. So now we've actually at least identified a pathway, which is- Well, and that's what I want to ask Dr. Williams too. I, I wonder if this, these, there's one, two, three, four, five, six policies and they all have to do with either standardizing or somehow streamlining, it looks like the um, processes for, for new privileges to um, allow for, for providers to, um, do new procedures and to have new privileges to streamline the application um, to move to different levels in um, the, the system as the medical staff, medical staff conflict of opinion, policy for credentialing practitioners in the event of a disaster. I mean, I appreciate these and I kind of looked at them to see if maybe this sort of thing in um, QPSC and in our, uh, by, by using the policies and procedures in the organization, we can give physicians, we can reduce the burden, the administrative burden on physicians and improve their ability to do what they do best, which is provide care to, to our patients. 
Yeah, I, I, I see what you're referring to. Um, I think these policies uh, were aimed to streamlining the credentialing process in terms of allowing our providers uh, to be um, uh, is sort of defining some of the aspects of credentialing process to making the process more streamlined and effective. And um, Satira, feel free to chime in and add um, more to on this subject. I think in terms of the primary care provider challenges, their challenges are not so much around the administrative aspect of things, but more uh, it's more of a uh, significant imbalance between the clinical the clinical burden that they currently have having limited capacity and the volume of patients and issues sort of coming their way. Um, I think that's that's a um, that's a part of uh, what they're asking help with and leveling the capacity um, in demand. Well, thank you, and and definitely if um, if there's opportunities to 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 work within the primary care department or other departments to, to make it easier and reduce the burdens. I, I think that would be appropriate and I would support that. Thank you. Dr. Tornabene. Um, thank you. I just wanted to share a little bit more detail. Thank you, uh, Dr. Williams, regarding sharing some of the work um, that we're starting to do in primary care. Overall, that um, there has been a task force that is formed some of the key areas that we're looking at, there's some, some subgroups um, that have formed. One is on specifically on recruitment and retention. We're partnering with um, uh, HR as well as Dr. Achilles Warren on in that group and some other um, uh, physician and physician leaders there. And number two, we're gonna launch a group that looking at defining what we call team-based care. That's really looking at all of the roles that go into providing care for our patients um, in a primary care setting and defining what is the scope of work, what is the standard work for all of these roles, and importantly, what's the ratio of, of support needed um, for each of our advanced practice providers and physicians who, who practice in primary care. Um, we have a whole data subgroup that is being led by Tangerine Brigham. Thankfully, she's amazing at leading that group and really helping get to the answer is what is our demand and what is our capacity and how are we defining that? And then um, there's another group looking at um, how do we look at templates in order to get um, better urgent access for our primary care patients into our clinics and, and really a broader look at all of the templates um, together. Um, so this is the start of a, a huge amount of focus and work in order to support our patients truly uh, and community who access our system for, for primary care. Um, it will be uh, supported even more closely by our new ACMO of ambulatory who will be starting in August. And then um, we are, I'm excited um, to have partnered with Mark Fratsky on this. We're actually bringing in a CAO of ambulatory so that there will be a CAO and an ACMO of ambulatory um, that will be uh, really helping drive all these changes uh, forward. So there's a lot of work underway and, and we want to get to some um, early successes and, and, and changes um, to, to make sure that we're making the environment better for everyone, most notably our patients, of course, um, as well as our staff. And then, um, yes, in terms of the policies that are here, the medical staff policies, these are renewals. Thank you, Dr. Tornabeni. That, that helps, uh, that, that clarifies uh, sort of some of the murkiness. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I think, repeat what I think I heard. 
what I think I heard is we're unclear of the delta between demand and capacity in primary care. Is that right? Yeah, we were unclear on the exact quantification of what that delta is. Okay, got it. Do we, is there a separate but related problem? Do we have open FTE that we can't recruit into? Is that a problem too? Indeed, indeed, we do. We have we have open positions you know in, in primary care. I'm sorry, I don't have that number off the top of my head, but we have open positions both in EBMG and um, in uh, positions in our wellness centers under our UAPD. Dr. Williams, were you about to speak? Do you have a feel on that, Dr. Williams? Yeah, so uh, we actually um, do have some data regarding the FTE uh, in primary care that sort of is not filled at present. Yeah. Up, um, as we speak, um, but essentially it shows uh, that um, not only um, uh, it it shows how 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 much FTE we have lost because a lot of physicians went part time due to yeah. the workload that wasn't quite sustainable and um, that further decreased um, the amount of FTE that's filled in primary care at present. Um, so uh, we do have some understanding of the numbers, but of course we need to do more more research and discovery to get the full uh, picture. Got it. And you know, I think we all keep talking about quants. So what I again, I'll repeat what I think I heard. I think we have two problems which are interrelated. One, we 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 have open FTE, which is on which we're having difficulty recruiting into, and problem two we haven't right-sized whether the FT we have is enough or, or proper. So but I think both of those are in process. And um, does that sound right, Felicia? Yeah, no, indeed. And even just things like how many people have access to overbooking appointments? You know, those are yeah. the detailed type of conversations yeah. that are underway. Uh, uh, so that I recently heard of a patient who was booked into appointment uh, you know, one day after the other, uh, because both people were different people were trying to get that patient in, yeah. you know, and, and the, that's the rework that we need to drive out of the system. Yes, ma'am. I'm ready to share the numbers. Uh, sure. The board would like to hear. Yeah, so the, ballpark. Um, the number of active patients for primary care services has increased by 5% between October 2021 and April 2022. However, the provider FTE to serve those patients has decreased by 14% wow. over those same six months. And that was largely due to a lot of providers have chosen to cut down on their clinical FTEs, have taken extended leave, and over 10 FTE of provider capacity remains, remains vacant. Did you say 10? 10. Wow, that's huge. Okay, got it. Trustees, any? Dr. Barry Zorthian. (laughs) Um, uh, Dr. Williams, on this point, and this is probably to all three of our our med staff leaders, I think a common theme is present about, uh, and you you made comment about this, about understaffing. Uh, I I think everyone's going to make comment. My question is, how do we get to the quantification of this? And, and maybe all three of you can make comment as to how you're helping to figure out what the quant is of, of, that, of that delta for unfilled. Uh, Dr. Williams, I'll start with you. I'm sure Dr. this is gonna be in Dr. Joshi's report, probably Dr. Afsali's report. So 
have you guys talked about uh, how we work together to get the quant on this? Are we not meeting scheduling 70% of the time, 90% of the time? Are we going the right direction? Are we going the wrong direction? These, these are sort of questions that I have. Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Dr. Bouquet. I think we've started the conversation of sort of how can we better define and quantify yeah. the staffing shortages and sort of what types of data we include in that 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 data set. Are we looking at provider shortages, uh, nursing shortages? Sort of uh, is is there a need to have some sort of a dashboard? Um, um, uh, what what are the best you know resources to get that data? Um, I don't believe we have an answer yet, but we have started sort of brainstorming this. And um, we were also talking, um, you know, we were also sort of wondering if provider shortages need or not need to be included into that set of data, because really um, providers almost never call out. The only reason when they call out is when they have COVID and they are unable, not allowed mm -hmm. to walk into the hospital. But other than that, we we don't, we rarely do that because we know then our colleague has to cover and they're already stretched really thin. Um, but of course, if that data is necessary, we can also figure out how to get that data together. Thank you, Dr. Williams. Trustees, as Dr. Williams closes out, any other comments for her? Yeah, I think, you know, it, all that is being done is so important and ultimately, like, how is it impacting um, our care uh, for folks? Like, what is, how is care deferred, delayed um, things, you know, is it impacting the patient population when we don't have the capacity to do that? I think that is the quant that is so important for us to kind of uh, be able to figure out. <laughs> Yes, Trustee Banerjee, I totally agree. Thank you, Trustee, uh, Dr. Williams. Let's go with Dr. Joshi next. I just saw her. Right here. Oh, upper, upper corner, you moved. <laughs> I did move. Um, thank you for allowing me to give my report. Before I get into the report, I just had a comment to add about the provider staffing shortages. It's obviously a very complicated thing. Um, one component that I'd add that really adds to the complicated nature of it is, at least from the perspective of the emergency department, there are minimum staffing requirements. For example, there must always be at least one physician in the emergency department at all times. So the fact that we have one physician in the emergency department at all times, if we were to go by that to say, is there a staffing shortage? I don't, I think that that would miss the point because just because there is that one person, it doesn't mean, it doesn't reflect the fact that perhaps the waiting room has 30 patients waiting to be seen versus a waiting room that has zero patients to be seen. So this thing is extremely complicated and there are ratios that must be met. There are minimum staffings that must be met, but even if we only hit the minimum, we are probably not meeting what our patients need within our system. So I just wanted to add that component to it. Um, going on to my report. So um, first part, quality and patient safety. Um, Want to highlight that with Mario Harding, we've been doing a lot of work and efforts in both the Alameda and San Leandro hospitals in understanding our materials management and how our equipment is ordered, stored, maintained, and serviced. Uh, to that end, I want to highlight that there have been some issues with equipment in our telemetry units, 
Um, we're working hard with GE to get the parts that we need. There have been delays in ordering. A lot of it's still related to pandemic and supply chain issues that are worldwide. But I just want to highlight that even what could appear as a small issue, one unit being impacted with some equipment has a ripple effect across our system, especially again, when it comes to our ability to move the patients through our system, because now a unit that isn't able to be full to the capacity with patients is patients now that are boarding in the emergency department, therefore more patients that are waiting in the waiting room to be seen. So we're working on this, um, partnering with Agility, partnering with GE, our leaders such as Doug Johnson, um, but just want to highlight that this is just one example of where we kind of hit roadblocks. Another thing that we are working on standardizing is the use of end tidal CO2. Um, I think to uh, Trustee Banerjee's point earlier on about what policies do we have? Do we know how, do we know them all as in-depthly as possible? Uh, probably impossible because there are so many policies within our system, which is a good thing. Uh, but we've identified that end tidal CO2 is definitely an opportunity to standardize what we're doing across the system. What I mean by that is that there are policies that already exist on the types of patients who need end-tidal CO2 applied to them. We are now working, have made significant gains on having sufficient monitors to have it so patients who require end-tidal are able to get it done. And we, the emergency department leaders at all three of the hospitals are going to be working with our head of respiratory system-wide to make sure that we are applying the policies that we currently have to its fullest. What that means is that the patients who need entitled CO2 will be able to get the entitled CO2. So I wanna highlight that. That's a positive work in the right direction. Operations Patient Throughput Committee. Um, again, with Mario Harding, we are starting early stages of getting a committee that will straddle both community hospitals that will be interdisciplinary, interspecialty, to work through throughput issues. This is not to replicate the work that Huron is doing. I see Huron as high level, helping us to establish what we should be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. But this committee will be able to say, okay, on a day-to-day -day basis, what are the hiccups that we are facing? For example, echocardiography has been a part of my report in the past months. We had challenges because of staffing that led to delays in patient throughput on the inpatient side. So we've identified that a committee that could have radiology, cardiology, physicians, pharmacy, case management, will be able to get to the nitty gritty of issues that may arise so that we can work through them. So I'm really excited of what that will look like. And Mario Harding is the perfect person to straddle that. Um, through that, some things that we've already identified that we could work upon is access to imaging across the system. So Troy Ashford has already said that he's going to be working on, for example, streamlining the process. If there is a patient at San Leandro who needs a CT, for example, that and that patient exceeds the weight limit of the CT scanner at San Leandro, that patient would need to go to either Highland or Alameda Hospital to get that CT. That process does exist, but there are definitely opportunities to streamline it. And so this, these are things that Troy already will be working on. But what the issue was is, okay, well, where would Troy report the work progress that he made? Is MEC the right place for it? Maybe not necessarily because MEC is kind of high level. Okay, if we can have this committee set up, this is the perfect place where there can be reporting and feedback and work made um, 
to establish and finalize it. Another thing that I'm hoping we will be able to do from such a committee is, again, more in-depth metrics about our bed availability. Ryan DeGibbs through the Transfer Center does um, almost three times a day reporting on the bed availability across our system. But there's opportunity in these reports to not only say X number of beds are available, these number of beds are not available, but why are these beds not available? Is it staffing or is it actually equipment related? And again, while this seems really minuscule detail, every bed is a patient who could be better served instead of boarding in the emergency department. So getting access to that level of detail will be very important to us. Um, I wanna highlight that about a week and a half ago, there was a successful ICU patient swapped. There was a Highland ICU patient who was able to be transferred to the Alameda ICU. There was an Alameda ICU patient who was able to be swapped to the Highland ICU. What that meant was that there was a critically ill patient in the Alameda ICU who would have benefited from subspecialty care that's only available at Highland. We were able to move them and then therefore move the patient out of the Highland ICU. Again, one small success, but hugely important. So I'm looking forward to more of those things. Um, Transfer Center will also be moving towards all the workflows that we've constructed with Huron to storing them onto the intranet. And I'm looking forward to having that available. Uh, communication has been a challenge. When resources are created, where do we store them? That is easily accessible, readily accessible. Once this resource hub is available on the intranet, it, that will be the logical place for that type of information. Uh, we're working closely, especially with our surgery colleagues and with Mark Brown on sterile processing of surgical equipment. We've made a lot of progress, at least high level of deciding that there needs to be an offsite facility that can do the sterile processing for the equipment, especially at Alameda and San Leandro. So, that work is ongoing and important work. Strengths, um, the strategic plan has been spoken about and we were glad to see that it's been accepted. Um, thank you to Mr. Jackson for that. Patient experience, uh, we've worked, uh, we've discussed a lot of components of that. One thing I wanna highlight is now the physician leaders every week get reports of patient experience, press gainies that is sent to them that is specific to their domain. This was important work by Olivia Kriebel's team. So for example, I every week get uh, information about the Alameda Hospital Emergency Department, um, the patient experience and the press gainie reports, and that's important. And it happens on a weekly basis, so it's definitely timely information. I wanna celebrate two notable gains in our leadership. One is that we now have um, uh, Dr. Lang for anesthesia is the new chair. She started, I believe, two weeks ago. So glad to have her there. And Dr. Charlotte Williams is now the interim chair of emergency medicine for AHS and will also be overseeing Alameda Hospital. So two important leaders that have been named, um, one permanent, one interim, but it's important work that has been done. Opportunities. Um, so again, transfers within Alameda Health System. We've had a lot of meetings about what to do at Alameda Hospital for critically ill patients. We've identified that the PACU at Highland Hospital would be a logical place to have these patients go, um, especially when boarding is an issue. And um, this, this is for inpatient Alameda Hospital patients. So the ED is not a landing place that is appropriate for them. Um, what we're waiting on is the next steps, hopefully to have 
a, a communication that can go across to the entire system outlining what that process would be. So even though this is something that would happen rarely, hopefully no more than a handful of times in a year, it's still so critical that it would be great to have a memo that could go out to the entire system to outline that process. Um, we talked a little bit about equipment. Um, I wanna highlight this last bullet point that this fall, we will be doing our pediatric readiness survey uh, for Alameda and San Leandro Hospital. This survey was delayed for a few years because of the pandemic, but we have been notified that they will be coming this fall. So this week we have our first meeting with regulatory and nursing leadership, including nurse leaders at Highland Hospital, where they have been doing the survey regularly for the last several years and have a lot of experience having successfully passed that survey. Um, so Dr. Sammy Hodroj will be taking the lead along with our um, regulatory leaders, our nursing leaders, our disaster teams. So the good thing is because we will be focusing on both Alameda and San Leandro Hospital, we'll be able to streamline the efforts and be a successful cross for both community hospitals. A key concerns, access to surgical, uh, access to subspecialists continue to be uh, an issue. We continue to uh, work on it as they arise case by case, notably neurosurgery, urology, um, and so we continue to work with them. Um, I know that Dr. Gaines, for example, is working with Dr. Turner Bene on looking at potentially a hybrid model for neurology. Uh, we're working continuously with Debbie Stebbins, especially to see what we can do in terms of compliance with the 2030 seismic requirements. We were asked to write another letter this week in support of that. So we were happy to do that. And staffing, we've already talked about, and I gave my thoughts on that at the beginning of my report. Um, that concludes my report. Happy to answer or discuss anything further. Thanks for that report, Dr. Joshi. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Joshi for the Alameda Hospital report? Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Dr. Sali, good evening, sir. Good evening, all. Um, there was a couple of uh, items on my report that are uh, duplicates of what have been mentioned by Dr. Williams and uh, Dr. Joshi. Uh, specifically transfers to Highland from the inpatient units, uh, the pediatric readiness survey and the specialty clinic follow-up, which uh, I will uh, defer because I think those have been ongoing and there's work in uh, process um, and nothing uh, more for me to add. Uh, Dr. Joshi and I work closely on, on uh, almost all of these together. Um, to help make, make these streamlining system-wide as much as possible. Uh, the uh, items I wanted to highlight, um, uh, I would like to start out by the staffing challenges. There's both uh, 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 items to celebrate and to highlight here as, uh, as uh, potential uh, changes for the, for the future. Um, so San Leandro's, uh, at least I feel like has been feeling the brunt of the staffing challenges in the system, which uh, I acknowledge are, are system-wide, uh, but I feel like there are most felt at, at San Leandro. Uh, early July was especially challenging. Uh, the past couple of weeks have, have improved, uh, although I wouldn't say we're out of the woods yet. Um, there was discussion and effort underway to quantify what this challenge mean, means in numbers uh, for those outside of those departments and outside of the hospital to, uh, to get, a, get a visual of what this means. Uh, and this, this stemmed from our board meeting earlier this month 
and uh, there's already work underway. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll have something to, to grasp there. Um, the one thing I wanted to highlight that I'm very appreciative of uh, and speaks to the culture at AHS is the RN leadership efforts to bridge administrative leadership gaps at San Leandro with recent departures uh, of our leadership staff. Um, I wanted to specifically acknowledge uh, Terrence Shaw for uh, stepping in to uh, coach the ED manager and uh, lead some of the change efforts there. Uh, I can already feel the impact. Um, the allocation of these resources from Highland to support local leaders at San Leandro, very much appreciated and speaks to the spirit of collaboration and integration and uh, may not be a bad model going forward. Now, that might not be popular for the folks doing the the the, the work uh, at multiple sites, but there's a downstream uh, benefit to this sort of uh, uh, work that uh, from, from management to staff uh, that cannot be overstated. Um, and it's uh, it has a huge benefit to driving AHS culture. So thank you for uh, for those efforts from Dr. Lofton. Um, I wanted to mention volumes at San Leandro continue to rise. Uh, the ED volume, at least uh, for June of 2022, uh, was uh, on, on average 82 patients a day. That's up from 75 patients a day. Uh, in June of 2021, and that's a 9% increase. Uh, Alameda has gone up from uh, 39 patients a day to 46 patients a day. That's a 14.5% increase from, from last year. Uh, July numbers are coming up in a couple of days, um, hopefully. Um, the other item I wanted to mention was EMS, uh, ambulance response times, and uh, this may be due to staffing, uh, but it just compounds everything down to the emergency department. Um, the transport response times to get patients transferred between sites has been uh, an increasing an increasing challenge. Uh, there is efforts to reach out to Royal to to sort of understand what the what the uh, 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 what the issues are surrounding this and if they can be addressed. But um, you know, my my assumption is it's outside the reach of AHS and has to do with their own staffing. They don't. There's plenty of rigs, uh, but um, not enough people to drive them. Uh, the next San Leandro Leadership Committee meeting will be on August second. Uh, this uh, we are already uh, scheduled to go over the agenda for for that month. Uh, so I will have a much more extensive report for you next month, hopefully. Uh, I stop here for questions. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Afzali. I think I saw Trustee Banerjee moving to a mute off. I did. I was guessed right. Trustee Banerjee. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Williams, Dr. Joshi Afzali, for your report. I think what's really heartening is over these months or the year, to see how much integration and kind of coordination is happening. Like we are really beginning to behave like a system and to see that with the uh, medical exec uh, for, of San Leandro intertwined with the core, as we used to call it, it's not core or peripheral anymore. It's all of us, all of us all in, but to have that, to be able to see some of the ways in which uh, these things are being shared and uh, done so really great to see even as you're thinking about like the granular levels of the issues that you're having so important to see is it a staff issue is it a equipment issue and understanding the concepts of it and again 
um, you know, uh, as we, as you all are dealing with such incredibly challenging times of having seen high volumes without the kind of staffing support that you need, both nursing and physicians, like um, we will be hoping that, you know, this is really the time kind of to be seeing much more about how do we minimize harm? How do we advance opportunity? Who is getting, like, how are we de determining benefits and burdens? How are we using some of our stratification to see like who is uh, like when we have such uh, scant resources and we have to stretch them to be able to do that. So I think in the, uh, as our strategic plan has a lot of these embedded in it and the foundational elements, hopefully those will also be kind of like the muscle the steep muscles that we are building, but also resourcing for those. So um, we know that it is something all hospitals are facing, but we are our hospital and what do we need to do that just, you know, even within, within our unique context. So again, a deep gratitude for all uh, that you all are doing and uh, good luck for the pediatric survey preparations as well. Thank you for those comments, Trustee Banerjee. Uh, so this question is, and again, we keep hearing the issue and uh, on staffing, which uh, again, qualitatively feels right. So Dr. Zali, a question you, you were saying, uh, this is an issue that you share with Dr. Joshi. And then I think I, what I thought I heard was, this feels like a worse problem at San Leandro than Alameda Hospital. I thought I heard that. If you said that, how, how do you know that? Well, uh, I said that because uh, I'm biased. So that, that's a biased comment. I'll acknowledge that. Uh, because, uh, you know, I'm mostly at San Leandro. So when uh, when issues arise, I hear about it first uh, right. from San Leandro. I don't necessarily hear it first from Alameda. Um, I think because, uh, because uh, you know, specifically in the ED, the, the volume uh, can feel overwhelming at times. And uh, that that data I do have, um, you know, in terms of uh, patients presenting per hour for the amount, for the number of doctors that are on shift, uh, that's highest in the system at San Leandro. So when we have patient, when we have staffing shortages there, it's the doctors feel it more because there are more patients per doctor. Um, uh, so that, that, that I can, I can say with assurance, that's not a biased statement. That's a, that's a true statement. Um, whereas, you know, if you have more physicians on shorter staffing, longer stays in the ED, uh, you, you always have someone else you can, you can rely on, whereas that's not necessarily the case at San Leandro. Um, and plus there are, you know, we, we are required to be in the emergency department at all times. However, uh, you know, we know that that's not always necessarily true. We have to respond to some emergencies on the floor at times, whether it's codes or not. Um, and so at times we are stretched thin. Now to speak to that, we are uh, looking to address that issue by uh, increasing staffing at San Leandro. Uh, Dr. Joshi and I are, are in efforts uh, currently uh, ongoing uh, to add an extra physician to the swing shift, which is the busiest time of the day between uh, noon and midnight um, to help address that issue. Um, but yeah, when you're already stretched thin, that extra drop uh, kind of breaks your back. 
So, so I, 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 I certainly hear you. So when we go to the granularity of the word staffing, and this is where, where, where I think specificity is important. Are we talking about staffing at the nursing level? Are we talking about staffing at the physician level? And this is rhetorical, of course. Are we, are we talking about support staffing? Because the, there's an all interplay, but they're individual characteristics. And this is, again, where I think the royal, we are sort of uh, flying a little bit blind on, on how we allocate our resources because we have finite resources in the system. And I'm just wondering where where's the bang for the buck? Can't, I can answer that, Idris, if you don't mind. Okay. And I, I think it's, we are truly talking about staffing at every single level. And I've said this before, and I really wanna say it again. Every single healthcare worker who is at AHS is one of the most critical members of our healthcare team. And I am especially talking about security text clerks. We are short on them which is just as significant to patient care as it is to the providers and to the nurses of whom we are also short on. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, at night at Alameda, um, we are down a clerk, which means that we don't have a clerk every single night in the Alameda emergency department. When we don't have a clerk, someone else steps into that role, whether that be the charge nurse or a tech. If we don't have a tech, then a nurse steps into that role which means that when you are already short-staffed, now you have people doing roles that um, they don't, they're not accustomed to. Um, they do it. Um, and this isn't even, can a nurse do a text job as good as they can? That, this isn't even about that. It's just simply now there is work that needs to be done that is now spread out over a smaller number of people. And that's what leads to patient safety events, harm events, delays in care. So to me, we need to be just as critical and concerned of our clerks, techs, security being short-staffed as everyone else. And we're a system with finite resources, right? So part of our allocation of resources is we have to be guided by metric, right? And that's, that's, that's where I'm sort of a little bit stuck on it. I, again, it feels like such an overwhelming problem. And I know myself, when I feel overwhelmed by a problem, I try to dissect it down into its pieces. Yeah. And, uh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, you go ahead. Yeah, and I, I think what we really, I so, so appreciate Dr. Joshi and Dr. Afzali for the nuance that you're giving in this, because sometimes when we try to get it into like bite-sized things that we can do, like the complexity of it and how sometimes like these, uh, these challenges in all of these compound on each other, like to create like, you know, different ways, like unless you're seeing just one, just seeing provider, just seeing nurse whereas, versus when you kind of see that in totality and see how in that unique context, it is, it is compounding and creating those. And I would say, um, Mr. Ch uh, our Dr. Chair is again, like if A, uh, we, I hope we are getting into a mindset of not scarcity, but abundance in this space that we have to like really to tell ourselves that we like, what can we do? And we are you, we will be building our muscle then to see when we, it, it is finite and we are trying to um, stretch it out. What are the metrics we are using and how are we making sure that that is being used in ways that is what is that, what is the bang for our buck? And who defines that is the most important part of our, and I think that that will be something that hopes you are closest to the ground 
and with the kind of data and metrics that we hope we have, we'll be able we'll be able to see them. You know, where is that lens we are using when we have to make choices? <laughs> Great comments. Yeah, one thing. I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Bika, before you no, move do, on. do not be sorry. That's I, we are here to talk about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, we so we talk about you know resource allocation, scarcity versus abundant mindsets. Um, one thing that I do believe is objective are requirements, regulatory, and ratios that must be maintained. Right. And I would argue that um, that's objective. Um, but in some ways, I don't know if we're necessarily meeting that right now because of the pandemic and staffing shortages. But even if we strive to get to that, at least right now, that would be, I think, a success. And then future state, we can talk about what ideal staffing can look like. But I don't even think we're at that um, state of where we're able to meet our current needs. Another example is at Alameda at night. Um, again, and I, I say night because that's when our volumes are lower. So perhaps the thought is, well, if our staffing isn't as um, where it should be, it's okay. But you could have a stroke patient. Alameda Hospital is a stroke center. And now that's an ICU level patient. That's a one-to-one -one nursing patient. And if you have a night where you're short staffed, that's a nurse, potentially tech, potentially clerk removed. So it's so interesting that one patient can put you from a somewhat okay balance into critical level of staffing shortages. So we are really often on that knife's edge almost at all times. Yeah. It just seems like it's the floor all the time. And even that achieving that is hard. Yeah. And the abundance was more in the mindset. And definitely, I think I'm so glad that you are, uh, that, that, that this is a space where we have to be fierce ambassadors for our staff and for our patients, uh, you know, beyond to the organization versus being ambassadors of the organization to the patient. Like it really has to be flipped that we are ambassadors of our patients to the, to the org. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, thank you for, again, you guys highlighting the issues. Um, I'll, I'll take off my chair hat and put on my division chief hat. What, what, a measure that we use is, uh, it, it's uh, again, I, I agree that the data is complex. The question we ask is staffed to the schedule. So if we have seven nurses scheduled for today, did we staff to the schedule? And, and we can say about 25% of the time, we don't staff to the schedule. And that, that's one of our metrics. We also do that for our techs. We also do that for our docs. We also do that for our schedulers. So it gives us an imperfect yet, uh, yet uh, a hard metric, uh, which, which we can use to leverage around that thing. So these are, I'm not gonna say uh, someone has to, you know, I, I, I have the fortunate luck of having an administrator who keeps, who loves spreadsheets, because this is all spreadsheet stuff. Um, but I ask you to consider something, you gotta make up some type of achievable metric. Staff to schedule is a, I think a pretty easy one to start off with. And then you later get to determine what the right schedule is and then answer the question again. So um, great conversation. I love talking ops and the challenge of ops. So with that, I think I'm going to close this very nice discussion on a critical issue to our organization, um, which is keeping staffing, which uh, not to absolve ourselves, which seems to be an extraordinarily common theme amongst the United States uh, and maybe the world. Uh, but again, it's still an issue for us, which impacts our quality. With that, we'll close out item C.
We'll go into item D, which is the patient safety, regulatory affairs, and the TNM dashboard, and we have our VP quality. Everyone's moving on my screen. Ms. Torres is on the right side now. Good evening uh, to our VP quality, Anna Torres, and, and the team, Darshan Graywall, Nilda Perez, Annette Johnson. Ms. Torres, good evening. Good evening, everyone. So I'm going to share my screen so that you can all see what I'm referring to. Okay, so we will start with the True North metric report. Um, you'll see for the month of May, um, we did better than we had in previous months. We met goal with five of the uh, 10 metrics. Uh, but when you look at year today, we only met with two of the metrics. So we have one more month to go uh, before the fiscal year ends. So with some of these, we're, we're not likely to meet it. As a Anna, uh, Ms. Torres, I, we, we don't see anything. You don't see it? No. I thought it was just me. <laughs> okay. Do you see it now? Now, perfect, thank you. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. All good, all good. <laughs> so this is our data through May. Um, you'll see the five metrics that met for uh, May and we've got only two for fiscal year today. So as a reminder, you're going to see a new uh, True North metric report um, September, um, but more than likely in October, because we would like to change the cadence as we talked about once before, so that the True North metric report actually goes to the Quality and Safety Committee first, to MEC before it comes to the board. And the importance of that is that it allows us to work through the action plans and, and check to see what's working, what's not working, what needs to be tweaked um, and so forth. So that by the time the report comes to the board, we would have more information on, on how the hospital's actually performance with regard to the action plans presented. So again, it may be September, but the more I think about it, it, it might actually be October. Okay, and then I will move on to the patient safety section. So this is our harm rate by fiscal year. The blue represents no harm and the orange represents harms and harms are defined as uh, significance E through I. And this comes through our uh, risk events. So the goal for the fiscal year was 3.5% uh, or less. So I'm really happy to report that we are at 3.18% for the fiscal year. And this is a full fiscal year. So you'll look that we were higher than the previous two years. However, when I show you the detail, this is actually something to be really proud of our rate this, this year. So this is that same information, but now we've got it by month. And you can see that for the first six months of the year, we were trending upwards with our harm rate. Um, and then in January, it dropped. And you'll see for the last three months of the year, uh, our harms were rated of significance E, which is the lowest significance. Of course, we would like zero harm, but if we're gonna have harm, we want E, the lowest level. Yeah. So um, we did a lot of thinking about what did we do right? Because clearly we did something right. We've had six months of a lower rate, much lower, and we want to repeat what we're doing right. So, you know, the more we think about it, I it's the culture of safety, which I think has a lot to do with it. Um, as we start to improve the culture, we create an environment where people feel safe, reporting errors, reporting near misses, um, and so forth. 
And it's also our commitment to addressing concerns. So when we have RCAs, and we do RCAs for near misses as well, um, we do have our C-suite represented at the RCAs, which gives it um, credibility, but also shows that, you know, the organization is going to hold people accountable for their action plans. We have a 30, 60, 90-day check-in um, when people submit the action plan. So our patient safety team is sitting down with the operational owners to make sure that they're staying on track, answering any questions. And if we need, if they need help implementing anything, um, we're there to help them. And then the other piece of it for transparency, we're also sending the RCAs through the Quality and Safety Committee. Um, and then from there, in the minutes, they will go up to the MEC so that the medical staff actually sees what's occurring throughout the medical center and how um, we're fixing it. And I think the third piece of this is really celebrating um, good practices that we, that we have. Uh, Ms. Torres, can you go back to that slide? This slide? Yeah, I mean, uh, for for the geeks in in, in which I try to be uh, here, uh, I I think this might be. So I'm looking at June, May, and April. If everyone will look to the right side of the screen, it's all blue. Blue means E. You'll e. see that all the other columns are topped by a different color. That means something more than E. So an E is sort of a temporary harm that didn't prolong hospitalization. Correct. Anything above E re either required hospitalization or even resulted in death. I'm not sure in my recollection of the past few years that we've had any months that were solely E. I don't have a recollection of that. So this is actually a super big deal. It, it, this is huge, I think. Yeah, it's, um, it's huge. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, I, I think everyone has really done a fantastic job throughout the organization because I, you know, the RCAs are really well attended. Um, all of the Midas reports are followed through. So, you know, there is a lot of effort going into this and I think it's starting to show. Yeah. Um, I, I did also want to show this slide, which shows that we had an increase in reporting. So you'll see these months, we were up in the 550, 534. So when we see that we haven't had uh, significant harms, it's not from lack of reporting because we've had an increase in reports the last few months. So again, yeah, this is fantastic performance by the organization. Um, and then I wanted to talk, I think one of the key areas as well is really celebrating when we see that people are doing well. So what I'd like to do is turn it over to Darshan Graywall, who's our uh, Director of Patient Safety to talk about the Innovation Award and then uh, also talk about the next steps with the culture of safety. Thank you very much, Anna. Um, as Anna has mentioned, uh, it's been an evolution that we're trying to socialize and um, be very transparent when there is harm and look for ways to not only improve it locally, but um, uh, make improvements systemically uh, where there is any similar patient uh, activity. So in, in the beginning of 2021, uh, my, my colleague, um, Hazel DeLeon, and now that role is, uh, uh, is that role is now Christian Riata. We actually developed uh, the Quality and Patient Safety Innovation Award. When we were conducting RCAs, um, the engagement, 
the energy that was put on addressing a lot of the um, deviations in care and then spreading it once we hardwired it was a opportunity for us to recognize those areas uh, for their efforts and really embracing the uh, event in a positive way. So we actually created this award based on what we were seeing and what we wanted to promote and encourage going forward. Um, it's been well received. So on a quarterly basis, the Quality Safety Committee actually recognizes one or two areas where we feel that their contribution has made a significant improvement in our patient outcomes. Um, so again, this is an ongoing initiative that we try to promote and it's been well received. And we're hoping that every single department across AHS will eventually you know, be recognized for their contribution towards um, improving patient care. So again, it's just, again, recognizing and celebrating the um, wonderful things that are happening across the organization amidst all the challenges that we we face every day as an organization. So again, these are many of the different award recipients um, throughout 2021 and 2022. Um, as you see, there's physician leaders, there's frontline staff, but again, we want to be able to utilize this platform in any positive way to encourage um, our leaders and frontline staff to feel good about um, the efforts that they're making. So uh, I'm hoping I ho I'm hoping someday we will transition to a monthly recognition. Uh, that is my hope uh, because it it does really um, it really does give back to those people that are actually carrying the weight. Mm -hmm. um, and then the next slide, please, Anna. Okay, um, this is my favorite part of this time of year. Uh, the culture of safety survey results um, were shared with uh, leaders and frontline staff back in April. Uh, May, June, and July was dedicated to be conducting debriefings with frontline staff so that we could glean some uh, qualitative feedback on what that survey meant to, to the frontline staff. We are almost at the end of that um, process. We um, uh, are very close to having 100% of debriefings done, and we had almost 200 work settings this year, which has exponentially increased over prior years. I want to say that um, the feedback that we are receiving is much more thoughtful and not, um, not really punitive per se, but really thoughtful about creating more um, engagement and value added feedback from the frontline to make AHS a better place for our patients, a better place for our employees. So I think the feedback that we're gleaming is, um, like I said, much more thoughtful and will help us propel forward as an organization. Um, so the next few months, uh, the, the ask is to have all of the operational leaders work on a action plan to address uh, one or two things in their designated areas that their staff have brought forth either from the survey results or the debriefing feedback um, and really, really, uh, make our frontline staff feel that they've been heard 
and valued and empowered to be part of the solutions to make their work settings uh, a better and safer culture. So any questions? I just would like to request that the score and the culture survey results that the, the um, department level action and monitoring plans be brought back to QPSC. That would be really interesting today. They happen all every year and I, I don't recall, but um, I, this, is, this is great news. And I'm glad to see that there's recognition of, of innovation because that's critical. And I think that when we, when we recognize it, then other, uh, the other people in the department or the other partners will also recognize it. And, and that can become part of the, the standard of care. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. This is really a great report. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. So to finish out our report, um, regulatory affairs. This is just a slide that talks Mr. about. Jackson, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, Mr. Jackson. Just and <clears throat> thank you. And very briefly, I just wanted to acknowledge that um, we have, in you know, Darshan talked about it more responses and more thoughtful feedback and frankly, uh, more more positive feedback. And so uh, on the desktop chat today, somebody said, you know, and it's anecdotal, you know, the the morale is lower than it's ever been. You know, what are you guys doing about it? And I just, you know, I want to respect the fact that they personally feel that way. But based on what we're able to see, that's not what's happening in the organization. But I want to acknowledge that that individual may feel that way. And so I'm very pleased with the information that, um, Anna has shared and Darshan has shared here, but there's more work to do, but this gives us a way to move out of the subjective and move to the objective as we're evaluating how the organization feels and what is our capacity for change. Thank you. Thank you, James. Um, and, and if I could just say it, the, the neutral debriefing of the culture of the, the survey, that's that will be really interesting because that gives people an opportunity, as you say, as, as you heard today, that'll give people an opportunity to, or the survey itself has given people an opportunity to express what they see in their particular unit or um, department and in a, a non-threatening way. And of course, that's the best way, as we know, to, to be, um, have a, a, a culture, have a culture of, of um, excellence, I would say. Trustee Banerjee, I see your hand. Yeah, thanks. I'd like to kind of reiterate um, what has been said, and thank you for the, um, I'd love to see this be brought to the full board because I know how much when we had shared about the culture of uh, safety score, that like what is happening with the debrief, how that is going, what are some of the learnings that are coming, uh, distilling down from up from there would have been so would um, Second, what um, Trustee Jensen said about coming back to QPSC and to actually be bringing this to the board. Again, the acknowledgement, the, uh, the honors the, uh, are so critical to keep the morale high and to, and to you know, be on a path of continuous improvement and innovation. So all of these little things at a time where staff is uh, you know, stretched and dealing with the third year of the pandemic and everything else is just like critical, critical cultural elements that that are so important for us as we kind of uh, build towards our mission. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee Energy. 
Thank you, Darshan. Uh, and uh, sorry, Ms. Torres, uh, back to you. And I think you're giving it to Ms. Perez. <laughs> yes, yeah, so this is, I, I don't think she's on yet. Got it. So this is a regulatory activity for the month. Um, and these are the recent uh, surveys. Recent is because we had one yesterday, the CAP survey, and upcoming surveys tomorrow, we'll have a disability rights uh, survey. MTALA, um, don't know if they are actually gonna come out since they are past uh, their due date. And then the Joint Commission survey, which is expected by the end of 2023. I'm sorry, by February, 2023. Um, and then before I end my report, I actually um, would like Deborah, uh, Dr. Deborah Ellis to uh, talk a little bit about the monkeypox. I think as you all know, the World Health Organization um, declared uh, monkeypox outbreak a uh, public health emergency. So Dr. Ellis, um, we wanted to give her a few minutes so she can talk about how uh, Alameda Health uh, System is responding to that declaration. Dr. Ellis? Can we go uh, back to full screen? Yes. Thank you, Anna. Uh, good evening, uh, trustees and uh, AHS leadership. Uh, just a brief verbal update. Uh, back when we first learned about the monkeypox cases um, and the outbreak, we went live with our monkeypox information hub. This was back in June. We developed and published our monkeypox control plan with information and guidance for all staff and providers with prevention and precautions for staff and providers. We've worked very closely with our Alameda County Public Health Department for approval of testing because testing needed to be approved by the county before we were able to even um, uh, uh, collect a sample. And um, so we had some notifications and collaboration and investigations with the county. There tended to be some delays in the clinicians acting. So we have worked very quickly or our laboratory department has worked very quickly under Dr. Eng now that commercial testing is available and it will speed up the process for our patients to be seen and evaluated. So we are now live moving to commercial laboratory testing with no pre-approval that is needed from the county. This is allowing us to really streamline the process. We also provided education to department leaders uh, on monkeypox and patient management, both inpatient and ambulatory. We have been included in the uh, weekly ROC updates that we are continuing to monitor the situation and we are providing any updates on our live monkeypox information hub on the AHS Thank you, Dr. Ellis. <laughs> Trustees, any questions of Dr. Ellis on monkeypox? Um, I don't have any questions. I just want to thank Dr. Ellis. I, I um, have been listening. I didn't listen today, but I try and listen every Wednesday. And I, um, I've really been, it, it's been great to hear, to hear staff um, responses to the information that they're getting from Dr. Ellis and, and her support. And I actually, Excuse me, I actually do have a question. Dr. Ellis, um, I understand that there's been some big challenges in getting vaccinations and you didn't 
vaccinations. Is there any, um, I, I think that there are some, there's been some questions from staff about the opportunities for vaccination. And um, I know that, that in the public, persons who are at risk can, have been quite, um, quite adamantly searching for vaccine opportunities and they haven't been available, especially in San Francisco. So I wonder if you could just comment on that briefly. Thank you. Sure. Um, we are having challenges with uh, 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 access to vaccinations, the county is. The vaccinations that are available are still the recommendations for them to be available to high-risk group in the population. Um, as far as it being specifically for healthcare workers, we have no indication at this time that there will be a active uh, mass vaccination of all healthcare workers. Um, we are keeping updated on anything that's uh, being reported out of the FDA, the CDC, down to the state of California and to the uh, county departments on access to vaccinations. Um, I know that we are continuing to have discussions about expanding to not only offer vaccinations as part of post-exposure prophylaxis, but as pre-exposure prophylaxis if you're in a high-risk group. We're still waiting um, and we're still, uh, I, I think we are going to have further discussions with the county, the communicable disease section tomorrow regarding that. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ellis, again. And again, um, I, I wanted to ask that because I know that this has come up at um, the Wednesday open forum meetings, the Wednesday chats. And, and I think that um, your provision of information on those to employees on those Wednesdays and through other venues in AHS has been really tremendous. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Any other I questions? Question. Um, yes. Dr. Ellis, this is Kini. Thank you again for. Um, the updates, very important. Are there any measures being taken to kind of reduce the stigma around this for our uh, populations that might be at risk so that there is, you said you spoke about, you know, preemptively to working with communities that might be at, and I know that we want to make sure that we don't, uh, like the, the kind of stigma that gets attached to something like this is minimized, eliminated to as much. So are there plans, are there, you know, as you're working with your partners in the county and across, um, how is that being addressed? Uh, yes, um, it is being addressed through the county. We are providing flyers and information, not only to high-risk groups, but to the population uh, that we serve all together. Um, uh, mainly highlighted that although we are seeing right now the current dem demographics that has been highlighted, um, uh, uh, a uh, high, high transmission within that demographic, it does not preclude you as an, uh, uh, person in the population from getting it. This is no respecter of persons and anyone can actually get it. So we have provided as part of our updated information on our intranet, we used directly the uh, flyer that is published uh, on the C uh, Alameda County Public Health Department's webpage and the printed information that has been um, uh, uh, published on the CDC website for information to all, not just the specific demographic. 
Thank you. That's so essential for our uh, um, frontline folks to know and practice and embody as well. Thank you. With that, thank you for uh, item D. We'll close out the patient safety regulatory affairs and TNM dashboard, and we'll go to our our uh, headliner this evening, which is our quality improvement project. This is on the QIP program and portfolio. This talk is going to be led by Dr. Neha Gupta, who of course is our medical director of value-based care. Uh, good evening, Dr. Gupta. Good evening. Is it okay if I share my screen? Go for it. Thank you, trustees, for giving me the time to share with you this very important program. Can folks see my screen? Yep. Great. Um, so I'm going to be spending a few minutes giving you a um, uh, overview and some details about the Quality Incentive Program, just some major highlights that I'd like you all to take away with you after we chat is, you know, firstly, supplemental funding is a huge portion of our overall revenue, approximately 20 to 30 percent, depending on the year. Um, the reason that these programs exist and are supported by state and federal dollars is to support population health for systems assigned lives, those lives that are assigned by our various, various managed care programs, and really with a focus on shifting to high value, low acuity preventative services. And there is increasing accountability to reduce racial inequities that we know are rampant across our state and our nation. Uh, QAP is complex, it's increasingly difficult, and it's a pay-for-performance quality program that's worth $60 million for our system each year. Um, and lastly, you know, these programs are not simply reporting programs. They've catalyzed transformational change at AHS that improve care quality sustainably over time. So just, you know, a quick, you know, summary by the numbers. Um, supplemental funding, as I mentioned, comprises 20 to 30% of AHS's um, total revenue. The left-hand side is a, a snapshot of the financial look back over the last 10 years that the, the um, finance team put together for the board earlier this year. And the breakdown of that supplemental funding is almost entirely comprised of GPP, the Global Payment Program, QAP, the Quality Incentive Program, and the dollars associated with our HPAC program. And as I mentioned before, these programs exist to support high value, low acuity preventative services. I won't go into all of the details. This is more for um, your reference, um, but GPP supports, um, again, high value preventative care and care of the un uninsured. QIP and the pay for performance programs that are run via our managed care Medi-Cal programs are all about preventative care, chronic disease control, maternal care, and care transitions and resource stewardship. They're almost entirely about our assigned lives, those folks that we are assigned through our managed care programs, um, regardless of whether or not we see them in our four walls. And then again, the HPAC um, contract also has a number of uh, pay for performance dollars um, allocated in, in, in support of the same concepts. There are a number of quality metrics in QAP. We have, I think, 54 metrics I last checked, and we report on 40 metrics each year. 
Uh, the purpose of this slide is to just show you the breadth of the program. It encompasses everything from pediatrics to the emergency room, to our bridge clinic, to the inpatient setting, to our L&D services, and then of course, primary care. And um, I think it cannot be you know, mentioned too much that this program encompasses all of our assigned lives, regardless of whether or not they are seen. And we know that roughly 60% of our assigned patients have not had a touch with primary care in the last two years. So it is a, a truly um, large task to take care of all of the people that we take care of and the people that we don't see. Um, QAP becomes more and more difficult each year. In order to achieve payment, we must meet a target that is set each year. And then every single year, we have to close the gap to the 90th percentile, which in and of itself might increase each year as all of the systems across the state improve their performance. And metrics must be stratified by race and ethnicity. And where there are gaps, we have to increasingly close those gaps in order to achieve all of the dollars for a given metric. Oh, my computer um, got very excited. I apologize. Um, oh, my goodness. Um, has a mind of its own. It wants me to speed up. Um, so this, this is a summary of our performance on this program for just a, a, a handful of metrics. Since the inception of Prime back in 2016, you can see that we our performance lagged on a number of measures when we first started. We had a continuous march towards improvement, exceeding the 90th percentile on a number of measures. We saw major downfall with the implementation of an enterprise EHR and then with the COVID-19 pandemic. And you can see that we are now in recovery mode. Um, almost all metrics are improving. Prenatal care looks like it is moving in the wrong direction, but you will see that the downward trend is flattening. And actually, if you look at monthly data as opposed to annual data, things are starting to look up there as well. So that is the sort of overview of QAP. I wanted to take a couple of minutes and just share a couple of snapshots um, where, where the work was really transformational, just to give you a flavor of the type of work that is in the QIP program. So the first is breast cancer screening. So I'll, I'll hearken back to several years ago, back in 2016. Before, you know, Mammoth, this is, a, 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 again, a snapshot at our Newark Wellness Center, one of our wellness centers in South County, um, Newark's breast cancer screening was lagging all of the other wellness centers and the providers had to do all of the ordering. I apologize that this is, um, something is stuck. Um, the transformational strategies we employed were leveraging our EHR, using standard work, and then auditing and feedback to really ensure that the team was involved in each patient's care. And so medical assistants started ordering mammograms and we started tracking what percent of mammograms ordered were done by an MA versus a provider to really kind of push that team-based care. And you will see that, you know, after just um, a year, uh, performance at Newark started to increase dramatically. The ratio of mammograms ordered by provider versus medical assistant also increased by 67%. And um, I did include most recent data that, per that performance improvement has been sustained over the last several years um, with Newark exceeding the 90th percentile to present day. I think that you may remember that Dr. Curtis shared a snapshot on asthma several months ago, so I won't belabor the point, but it was one of our 
more transformational activity that I wanted to recapture in the context of QIP. Um, before asthma had, um, our performance on asthma was very low. As you know, asthma disproportionately affects our black and brown patients, particularly those who live in particular zip codes. And there is a metric that looks at how many emergency inhalers are they using compared to controller inhalers. And that is a marker of their control. We were not where we wanted to be. There were two main interventions that were employed. Again, you'll see a theme, the EHR, changing just the default so that people can't just keep refilling albuterol, you know, over and over again without a doctor ever knowing about it. And then two, you know, leveraging community health outreach workers to call patients who are using their rescue inhalers, teach them about appropriate inhaler use. And then in phase two, notify the PCP, hey, this patient's not on a controller inhaler. You might want to prescribe one so that the primary care doctor could actually check the medications, maybe call the patient in for a visit, and then certainly prescribe a new medication. And you'll see that over, you know, three-year journey, these calls began, the EHR has changed, providers start getting notified, and again, a march, continuous march over years to exceeding the 90th percentile. And then lastly, the work of Dr. Sims Mackey and the entire pediatric team on pediatric lead screening, which is only one example of our pediatric transformation that has been taking place over the last two years. Um, as a result of the pandemic, lead screening was declining. As you know, um, lead screening is something that is done in all children nationwide, but is particularly important in our black and brown communities and those who live in certain zip codes where um, we have a higher rates of lead in the water and in the paint. We, um, we saw that our performance was declining and we changed the decision support in the EHR again so that it's easy for a provider to know, hey, it's their nine month well check, it's their one year well check, let's default the order, let's have a clinical decision support reminding them about the order, let's include informational materials in the after visit summary that the patient receives. Let's actually give people tools and knowledge so we have a process measure that is available at the clinic level, the provider level, and the medical assistant level for all the kiddos who were due at, for a lead screening who were seen in the last week or month in your clinic, how many of them had that lead ordered in that visit? And you can see, you know, they have extremely high rates in well child visits and their rates even in sick visits is actually quite high as a result of this process measure. And thirdly, and very excitingly, we've joined the 21st century. We now text our patients. And so we can actually send folks a text reminder, hey, you're due for your lead screening. It's been ordered for you. Head over to the lab. You don't need an appointment and get that lead screening done at your earliest convenience. And you'll see, you know, it took a lot of trial and error. This is a run chart of the performance over the last year or so. You know, they, they try one thing, it doesn't succeed. They try another thing, it doesn't succeed. And over time, they've identified the, you know, major dial movers, needle movers that have improved lead screening. It's, um, we've hit our target for this year. We have not approached the 90th percentile. There's a lot of work to be done, but we're clearly on the right trajectory. There's some ex extra information in the appendix that I won't go, go into right now, um, but folks are welcome to look at it offline and ask me questions. That was excellent, Dr. Gupta, a quick, a quick run through. Would you mind advancing a couple slides? Actually, some of your, this one, your appendix slides are, are, are great as well. Can you talk us through this one? 
Yes, I absolutely can. It was very hard to select the appendix, but I knew I had a, a, a clear time limit and I wanted to make sure there was time for questions. Yeah, you hit it. You hit it. Um, so this is a summary of the dollars that we've, the, the eligible dollars, as well as the dollars we've achieved by program over the last six years now. So gray refers to prime dollars, blue refers to QIP dollars, and the white bar refers to all of the eligible dollars. So you can see um, during the 11-15 waiver before the inception of QIP, um, we were just in prime territory. Um, we left some dollars on the table and we have left some dollars on the table each year, um, but we do recoup the majority of our dollars. I think we leave sometimes three to $4 million on the table. Although last year we achieved hundred percent of our dollars. And yeah, that's why I love this slide. And this year we are also hoping that we will achieve hundred percent of our dollars. A lot of that is due to some of the COVID mitigation um, some of the challenges we have are our unseen lives and the need to expand primary care. Uh, going challenges for us. Got it. Um, trustees, um, questions of uh, Dr. Gupta. Thank you, Dr. Gupta. This is Kuntini. And again, like standard work, team-based care and uh, the kind of transformative strategies, I think, um, you know, in and hearing at the top, the kind of um, staffing shortages that you also have. So like the, uh, you know, uh, the obligation, not just to the folks who are in, coming into the clinic, but that are in the, uh, within our health back system of those who are probably not accessing. And I know how, it, important it is to balance those and to be able to do that. I am excited to see how might the community health worker, uh, as we kind of work through that, how that is happening, but also so many takeaways from what's happening in primary care, I think would be just amazing for our outpatient specialty care to, to learn and um, work in those areas too about the outreach, about the ways in which um, some of these strategies are working. So thank you. Thank you. Trustee I, to, um, Trustee I, have a, I have a question about the, um, the QIP and how those standards track with the joint commission requirements or what the uh, joint looks for. They, you know, I, um, I defer to Anna to speak more about the sort of details of joint commission requirements. I think where the programs are very similar, you know, um, we have uh, really rigorous expectations about data integrity, documentation integrity, um, standard work. I think some of the areas of focus are a little bit different. The joint commission tends to be a little bit more inpatient oriented from what I can gather and QAP is certainly more ambulatory, but um, you know, uh, Ms. Torres sits on both QIP steering and oversees all of our regulatory work. So I defer to her. Well, I was, and, and just, um, yeah, as you, as you address this, I was just looking at the early slide that taught, that addressed or, or discussed, outlined all of the different areas of practice and um, requirements that one of the very first slides, the overview of, that was it, the overview of quality metrics. And those seem to be, similar to some of the things that we are addressed by Joint Commission. 
Yeah, there is some overlap with, with the metrics here, particularly, I think, with the maternal and the perinatal um, health metrics. Um, Joint Commission is really changing a lot of the core measures, and they're trying to go more towards the electronic uh, measure. Um, I, I think what's unique about the, the QUIP program, though, is that there is actually um, targeted improvement work. Really, what Joint Commission does is give you the core measures and tell you they expect improvement. But when they come out to the hospitals, they never really look at that. So I, I think very few hospitals actually um, do improvement with the core measures. That's really helpful. Thank you. I have one more question. Um, Trustee Banerjee. Uh, Dr. Gupta, do you mind putting us uh, uh, out, of, out of presenter mode and we'll go back to looking at each other? Thank you so much. Um, Dr. Gupta, one thing that kind of comes through very strongly when any of the primary care ambulatory um, presentations happen is that there's just such a uh, strategic uh, imperative um, on the equity uh, with our Q QIP measures and the understanding of the nuance of it. And I just wanted to know, like, what is it that you all do over there? that allows you to use that lens so consistently? Like what is the capacity building that has happened that we hear this uh, sophistication in, in your approach that we see in primary that we hope to see in the inpatient? Yeah, thank you for the question. I apologize for going off video. I have to um, feed my baby before she goes to bed. So I, I apologize. Um, <laughs> Do not apologize for the, you know, I think we have a really rigorous um, commitment to data and data integrity, and we have a lot of effort and energy that goes into, um, you know, having good data and having stratified data. And I think that that's, you know, where things started by first being able to just see where are your disparities and then improving from there. Thank you. Thank you. Please feed your baby. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I apologize. Yeah, no, not no, at do, all. Yeah, this don't apologize. I'll end with the last question for Dr. Gupta. Dr. Gupta, when would, is there a projection for QIP and GPP to sundown or no? Um, there is no expectation for QIP to sundown. QIP awesome. is expected to continue in perpetuity. Um, it's, you know, it's financed via, you know, supplemental Medicaid dollars that used to come be directed payments via the managed care plans. Right. And because of the Affordable Care Act, that they were no longer allowed to be directed, but they're preserved through QIP. And so that's indefinite. Okay. Um, I think the long-term plan with GPP is for it to fold completely into CalAIM. And so that may go away completely. Okay. Um, but QIP is here to stay. Okay, that's good news. And it helps push us towards opportunity. So uh, thank you for that excellent report. With that, we'll close out item E. Um, item F is the planning calendar and issue tracking. We basically just discussed Trustee Banerjee, or maybe it was Trustee Jensen. One of my trustees proposed that score survey results should be brought back to the full board. I think that makes perfect yeah. sense. Tracy. Uh, got it, Tracy. So uh, Trustee Jensen. So Trustee Banerjee, I, I was keeping notes, but was there also another suggestion for you to bring something back that I didn't write down? Oh, I'm sorry. I haven't been keeping score as well. Okay. But I'll, I'll, if, if it strikes me, I will uh, go back after the meeting. Okay. So um, uh, remember uh, going forward on the schedule, 
all the board, the regular board of trustees committees are dark in August, save this one. So we will have our regular uh, August meeting. So with that, I will close out the, the open agenda and uh, close session. Council. Thank you, Chair Bouquet. The quality committee of the board will now go into closed session to consider the items as stated on the agenda. Uh, give me a, a minute as I move us into close, please. So public, uh, we, we should be only in there for hopefully less than 15 minutes. Uh, I don't anticipate much to report out to, so I hope you guys have a great evening. Uh, we've just returned from closed session. Um, council, he's not in the room yet. I'll, I'll just say uh, there were uh, there were no um, actions which occurred in the closed session. Actually, there's council. Council, I'll let you do it. I know you love doing it. <laughs> the quality committee of the board met in closed session and the board approved the medical staff reports, the quality committee, and took no further reportable action. Thank you very much. So with that, we're going to close the July 27th, 22 uh, QPSC. Everyone have a great evening.